$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of Jesse Shockley in Glendale, Arizona. Let's get right to it. The city of Glendale is located about nine miles northwest of downtown Phoenix. It's Arizona's sixth largest city, and according to GlendaleAZ.com, it's known for Saguaro Ranch Park, a 17-acre ranch that features historic buildings, a rose garden, barnyard, and orchards, making it a popular tourist destination. The State Farm Stadium, the home of the Arizona Cardinals, is also located in Glendale which has hosted the 2008 and 2015 Super Bowls and will be the site for upcoming Super Bowl 2023. But in 2011, the city of Glendale was making headlines for a different reason. It all started at roughly 5 p.m. on October 11th with a desperate call to 911. On the line was 38-year-old Jerice Hunter. She was calling to report that her 5-year-old daughter, Jessie Shockley, was missing from her apartment near 45th and Glendale Avenue. The story she told the 911 operator was every parent's worst nightmare. According to the 911 call obtained by AZ Central, Jerice reported that she had left her apartment briefly, leaving her oldest child, who was a young teen at the time, to watch her younger siblings while she caught a cab from her home and went to the nearby PLS check cashers to cash a check. She had only been gone for between 20 to 30 minutes, and when she returned home, Jessie was gone. She began frantically searching the apartment, checked around outside, and had looked everywhere she could think to look, to no avail. When the operator asked how long her daughter had been missing, Jerice claimed it couldn't have been over an hour. The Glendale Police Department responded immediately, and officers began to scour the neighborhood looking for any sign of little Jessie. Initially believing it was possible that she may have unlocked the apartment door and simply walked out. They searched through the night but found no trace of the missing girl. 
The following day, on October 11, 2011, an Amber Alert was issued after a tip came into officials that a 25- to 35-year-old African-American woman driving a 1998-2000 to 2000 Chevrolet Malibu was seen putting a child matching Jesse's description in the vehicle in the area from which the girl vanished. Media reports describe Jesse as a black female, approximately 3 foot 5, 55 pounds, with long black hair that was in a ponytail at the time of her disappearance and brown eyes. Last seen wearing a solid white t-shirt, blue jean shorts, and pink flip-flops. And with that, investigators deployed the Arizona Child Abduction Response Team, which included the FBI, the nearby Chandler Police Department, and the Arizona Department of Public Safety to help find Jesse. Sex offenders in the area were also questioned, and police, canines, and bloodhounds deployed in the neighborhood. The media broadcast Jesse's picture, and police urged anyone with information to come forward. Resources began to pour in, and over the next few days, hundreds of officers from Glendale and surrounding jurisdictions searched relentlessly for Jesse, but there was still no sign of the little girl. Jerice appeared devastated. The community and some family members rallied around her, and everyone did what they could to help find her daughter. But not everyone. Not everyone bought Jerice's story because they knew something about the seemingly devastated mother's history that the police had already uncovered, and the rest of the world would soon learn. Approximately two days after Jesse vanished, reports of a horrific history of abuse surfaced. It left many questioning how in the hell Jerice had custody of her children in the first place. We'll have to take it all the way back six years and 700 miles away from Glendale. According to court reports, in 2005, Jerice Hunter was living in Valley Ho, California. She was married at the time to a man named George Shockley and had four children, three girls ages 3, 7, and 9, and a 14-year-old boy. As we move through this case, I will not be naming any of Jerice's other children. I know it can get a little confusing, and I'll do my best to make it as clear as I can. But they are innocent in all of this, and their identities should be protected. I'm sure you understand. With that said, let's get back to the story. As I was saying, Jerice was married to George Shockley, sharing a home with this man and her four children. But George Edward Shockley III was and is a registered sex offender. And not just a sex offender, but a high-risk offender. A high-risk offender is pretty much just what it sounds like. It's defined by the state of California as a serious offender who has a high risk of reoffending and who may pose a greater danger to the public than other offenders. I mean, nothing says marriage material like high-risk sex offender status. Shockley III had two convictions, a 1990 conviction of annoying or molesting children under the age of 18, that was followed by a 1993 conviction for lewd acts with a child under the age of 14. He was barely out for his first offense and already offending against another child. And yet, here he was, 
out again and living in a home with four children. On October 16, 2005, the grandmother of the children had reported to the Valley Hill Police Department that during a visit, the children had disclosed to her and their aunt that they were being abused by their mother and stepfather. The grandma told police that a day prior, her daughter had picked up the children from Jerisa's home. The aunt noticed a laceration on the leg of the three-year-old. When she asked the toddler about it, the child told her that she had been whipped with an extension cord by her mother. That's when the seven-year-old came over and said, quote, That looks like mine. She got a whipping just like me. As she spoke, she pointed out lacerations and raised welts on her arms. The auntie then checked over the child's body. To her horror, there were numerous scars and welts all over. The child told her that her mom and stepdad had also whipped her with an extension cord and a belt. The Valley Ho Police Department began investigating and talked to all four children. The 14-year-old boy reported to authorities that a month prior, Jerese Hunter had punched him in the jaw over an argument about him wanting to go outside and play. The boy also revealed that he had suffered abuse at the hands of his so-called mother his entire life, telling officers that up until he was 12, she would punch him all over his body and beat him with sticks when she was angry. Jerese had threatened that if he ever told, he and his sisters would be taken away and separated. He didn't want to lose his sisters, so he remained silent never telling a soul about the abuse he was suffering. The officers then talked to the three-year-old, who showed them a fresh, two-inch-long wound on her leg. She couldn't quite explain to the officers how she got the injury, so her aunt stepped in and asked if her mom had whipped her. The little girl nodded her head yes. The seven-year-old recounted that four days earlier she had gotten in trouble and Jerese tried to whip her with an extension cord while she was completely naked. But Jerese couldn't effectively beat the child and hold her down at the same time, so she called for George Shockley. Shockley came and held the child down as her mother struck the front of her body repeatedly with the cord. She also told officers that she had been whipped for, quote, a lot of years. Her nine-year-old sister then chimed in and said that their mother whipped her younger sister on average five to six times a day, about two to three times a week. The grandma and the aunts informed officials that after they had initially learned of the abuse, they had confronted Jerese about the welts on the children, and she had responded with, and I quote, those are my motherfucking kids, and I'll do whatever I want. But the law would disagree. Jerese Hunter and George Shockley were both later charged with one count of torture, four counts of causing corporal injury to a child, one count for each of the children, and Shockley picked up an additional charge for failing to register as a sex offender. Let's talk about that charge of causing corporal injury to a child for just a hot minute. Because when I first read it in the court documents, I had never heard it before. And to me, it didn't sound as serious as, say, cruelty to children, which is what the pair would have faced in the state I currently reside in, which is Georgia. 
So I did a little research and it turns out that in the state of California, causing corporal injury to a child is about the same charge as cruelty to children, assault and battery of a child, or child abuse as it's known in other states. California defines this charge as willfully inflicting cruel physical injury on a minor resulting in trauma. There are degrees and levels, and it can range all the way from misdemeanor to felony. In this particular case, the charges were all felonies. George Shockley and Jerice Hunter were facing serious time. Investigators interviewed Shockley, and he admitted to holding down the seven-year-old child while Jerice hit her repeatedly, stating that Jerice struck the child at least eight or nine times, going on to say that he felt it was excessive and told her to stop. He would also recall that the seven-year-old later asked him, Why didn't you save me? The woman who had given birth to these four beautiful children was so abusive that they were looking to a sex offender to be saved. Let's let that sink in for just a moment. Matters were complicated even further because at the time, Jerice was pregnant. According to Jerice's cousin Lisa, as she spoke out on True Crime Arizona, the podcast, Jerice was seven months pregnant with baby Jesse when she was charged. A warrant was issued for her arrest, but before she turned herself in, again, according to Lisa, Jerice went to Phoenix and asked Lisa if she would care for Jesse while she served time in prison. She and Lisa and her other cousins had always been so close, so of course, Lisa agreed. Not long after the arrangement was made, prosecutors in California struck a plea deal with Jerice on the child abuse charges. The deal? They dropped the most serious charge of torture and, quote, seriously consider probation. And in exchange, Jerice would plead no contest to four counts of causing corporal injuries to a child. And on January 30, 2006, Jerice did just that. The court held up its end of the deal and incredibly did seriously consider probation. A pre-sentence report was conducted by the probation department, as the name implies, prior to Jerice Hunter's sentencing. According to Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, a pre-sentence investigation report, or PSI, is an investigation into the legal and social background of a person convicted of a crime before sentencing to determine if there are extenuating circumstances which should influence the severity or leniency of a criminal sentence. It was designed to promote individualized sentencing. At the completion of Jerisa's PSI, the probation department recommended that the court deny probation and instead sentence Jerisa Hunter to state prison for 10 years. The trial court then referred Hunter to the Department of Corrections for a diagnostic study. At the conclusion of the evaluation, the DOC also recommended she be sentenced to state prison. The document reading in part that Jerisa was, quote, likely a poor candidate for probation and remained a threat to the well-being of her children. On April 1st, 2006, Jessie Shockley made her grand entrance into the world. Her mother was still awaiting sentencing and Jessie was placed in the care 
of her Aunt Lisa and Lisa's sister. The two aunties cared for the beautiful little baby girl just as you would imagine two aunties would, showering her with love and treating her like the princess she was, dressing her up in the cutest outfits, always adorning her hair with bright clips, bows, and beads. Jessie was in great hands, knowing only unconditional love and having her needs not only met, but exceeded with Lisa and her sister. On August 22, 2006, Jerese was sentenced to eight years in a California state prison, the court stating she, quote, should have never, ever had children. George Shockley III was later sentenced to 12 years. Jerese's other children were placed with her mother, Shirley Johnson. Jessie continued life with her two aunts who were there for all her major milestones. For four and a half years, little Jessie grew up in their home in Phoenix, Arizona, and her life was filled with all the things every little girl deserves. Her Aunt Lisa described Jessie as a wonderful joy and a princess who wanted to become a ballerina when she grew up. But life as they all knew it changed in 2010 when Jerese Hunter was paroled after serving half of her sentence, just a little over four years. Upon her early release, she fled California and moved back to Arizona. According to class kids, when Jerese got back to Arizona, her mother Shirley handed over Jerese's three daughters, three of the four children she had been convicted of abusing. By this point, Jerese's son was an adult, so thankfully, he didn't have to return to his abuser. Shirley wanted to, quote, reunite the family, claiming Jerese had seen the air of her ways while doing that short stint in prison. Shirley Johnson couldn't have been more wrong. Jerese's mother had given back the children she had cared for while Jerese served time in prison for abusing them. Four-year-old Jessie remained with her aunts, but that wouldn't last long because Jerese was determined to get custody. She contacted the aunties and asked that they give her Jessie, but they refused because at the time, Jerese didn't have a stable home and was bouncing in and out of homeless shelters. And they weren't exactly convinced Jerese had changed her ways. This wasn't the life Jessie was accustomed to, and her aunts were the only mothers she knew. They suggested that Jerese get back on her feet and get established first, and then a transition could be made slowly. Taking Jessie away from the stable home environment she had always known would be too traumatic. The little girl didn't even know her mother, but she was still fighting for custody. In August of 2010, the Phoenix police came knocking demanding that Lisa and her sister give Jesse back to Jerese. According to Lisa, the police threatened to kick in the door and remove Jesse, and if they didn't willingly give the child back to her mother, she would be thrown in the foster care system. Faced with two impossible choices, they handed Jesse over, deciding it would be best for her to stay with the family. As we all know, the foster care system can be a roll of the dice. 
so they figured it was better the devil they knew than the one they didn't. As time passed, the two women who had raised Jesse were devastated. They didn't hear much from the little girl that their worlds had once revolved around. According to later court testimony, Easter of 2011, Lisa and her sister got the chance to see their beloved Jesse, as well as Jerisa's other three girls, again at a family picnic and Easter egg hunt. But Jesse wasn't the same happy-go-lucky child with the bright smile they knew and loved. Once, outgoing Jesse was withdrawn and looked thin, and Lisa would testify that it, quote, looked like teeth had been hit out of her mouth. Lisa further recalled to True Crime Arizona that as soon as Jesse got her other aunt alone, she said, Auntie, you have to get me. Please take me home with you. Both Lisa and her sister knew at that moment that something was very wrong because the shine in her eyes was gone. They wanted to scoop her up and take her home with them that very moment, but tragically, they couldn't. A family member did reportedly place a call to Child Protective Services, but Jessie remained in the custody of her mother. As time went on, according to Lisa, as reported to AZ Central, three calls were placed to CPS to check the welfare of Jessie and her sisters. CPS disputes this claim and later released a report claiming they only received one prior allegation of abuse involving Jessie. It was dated February 28, 2011. The report stated that an allegation was made that Jerice Hunter was homeless, and an additional concern was raised as Jerice had recently been incarcerated for child abuse. But, as I'm sure you figured out by now, CPS took no action, and at some point, Jerice moved into an apartment with her children. That Easter picnic was the last time Lisa and her sister ever saw little Jesse. Fast forward to October 11, 2011, just 10 months after the aunties were forced to relinquish custody of Jesse to her mother. They received a phone call that Jesse had been reported missing. Lisa and her sister doubted Jerisa's story about running a quick errand to the check cashing place and coming home to find that Jesse was gone immediately. They suspected Jerisa knew more than she was saying. As we know, police had exhausted every resource, tracking down leads and searching relentlessly for Jesse, but days of searching had led them nowhere. And when they turned their attention back towards Jerise Hunter, pressing her further for answers, she became uncooperative. She refused to polygraph, but according to the Glendale police, she had a good reason for not taking the test. Jerice was eight months pregnant when Jesse went missing. According to polytest services, most reputable polygraph examiners will not perform an examination on a pregnant woman, not because it would necessarily affect the test, but due to liability reasons. Exceptions can be made if the woman gets clearance from her physician and signs a waiver, but that scenario is rare. A refusal to take a poly or even her history of abuse 
weren't the only reasons police had shifted the focus of their investigation back towards the missing child's mother. Not by a long shot. Investigators continued to question Jerice about the details surrounding her daughter's disappearance, but she stuck to her original story and adamantly denied any involvement. On October 19th, the Glendale police offered an $11,000 reward to anyone who could provide information that led them to Jesse. They made it clear that they no longer believed she simply wandered away from her home. That same day, Shirley Johnson spoke to ABC 15, stating that she had called a special meeting with the Glendale Chief of Police, City Manager, and Mayor Elaine Scruggs because she believed police weren't doing all they could to find Jesse, claiming they botched the investigation from the beginning by focusing on Jerice. She also revealed that earlier in the week, Jerice's other three daughters were removed from their mother's home by CPS and placed in foster care. Johnson openly admitted that finding Jesse wasn't even her biggest concern, stating, My main concern is my three grandkids in foster care and trying to get them back. What planet are we even on anymore, and how did we get here? Baby Jessie was missing, and according to her daughter, no one had a clue where she was or who had taken her, but that wasn't her main concern. The other children were in foster care, which isn't exactly ideal, but at least they were accounted for. Besides, due to the circumstances, they were being spoken to by investigators and monitored by officials pretty damn closely. And maybe that's why it was such a huge concern. Because what Jerisa's own children began to recount after they were away from her and safe with their foster families would change everything. But that will have to wait until next week because unfortunately we're running out of time and there is so much more to this story. Join me right here next Thursday for the conclusion of Jesse's case. One more quick thing before we go. The latest statistics show that on average five children a day die in the United States alone due to neglect and abuse. Oftentimes there are signs that can be detected. Some of these warning signs are sudden unexplained changes in the child's behavior, a child who is constantly fearful, unexplained burns, bites, bruises, broken bones, or black eyes, or multiple injuries in various stages of healing, a parent who is neglectful of said injuries to the child, or a child who doesn't seem to want to go home or appears fearful to leave after school or church activities. These are just a few examples. A comprehensive list and a bunch of other resources are available for free at childwelfare.gov. If you suspect a child is being abused or neglected, please reach out to the Child Protection Agency in your state. Even if it's just a suspicion, reach out. It's better to be wrong a hundred times and report than to be right once and fail to make the call you could literally save a life. For the U.S., a state-by-state list of agencies is also available at childwelfare.gov. I'll be sure to link the site in the show notes. 
As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you the conclusion of Jesse's case next week, and I can't wait. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.